Rita Van Zandt honed a political skill set on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., as well as various state and federal campaigns. Jaquetta has a, been a respected voice at the table to aid in making significant decisions that impact communities of color. A highly sought after political strategist with a special focus on public policy and diversity initiatives, her desire to bring about equal opportunities to women of color has brought her back to Massachusetts. Her goal towards making an impact on her community and to bring important issues to light, such as pay equity, financial literacy, socioeconomic development, women's empowerment, and diversifying the legislature are at the heart of today's most important issues. She is an instrumental force on many campaigns, including the successful campaign of Framingham's first mayor and only popularly elected woman of color to that post. Van Sant, along with Lori Lennon, launched a growing and popular Zoomcast podcast called Politics in Prosecco. Politics in Prosecco is an hour-long show where guests and hosts engage in topics around current events and its impact on everyday life. In addition to hosting Politics in Prosecco, Van Sant currently serves on the board of directors for the Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts. Born and raised in Boston, Van Sant graduated from Mount Ida College, now part of the UMass education system, with yeah. a BS in criminal justice. She resides in Quincy, Mass. Please join me in welcoming Jaquetta Van Sant to Hot Mama Chronicles. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes, yes. I feel like, honestly, we could just stop at the intro because you've done so much. You're so oh, <laughs> <laughs> She's like, we really could. We really could. No, no, no. <laughs> so much to talk about. So much to talk about. So I always start with uh, everyone um, setting the grounding for our conversation. Everyone has an origin story. So can you start by sharing yours? So when you say origin, what exactly do you mean? Just how you grew up how you were as a young woman um, coming up. Well, um, let's start with, no. <laughs> um, so like I said, I grew up in Boston, um, daughter of a Boston police officer. Um, my mother was a stockbroker. And I, my parents were already very involved in the community. So I sort of had a footing ahead of time. Um, and it was just natural for me to be invested in my community. Um, even when I was in high school, I went to John D. O'Brien School of Math and Science. Shout out to the Tigers. Um, and our teachers there, and even our principal, Dr. Anglin, was um, extremely community-oriented. They wanted you to be a well-rounded person. Um, and so that's always been a part of who I am. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't somebody who was, I mean, there wasn't, there were no clicks at O'Brien. It was just kind of like everybody was popular. Um, it just, whatever you're, you know, were you with the football team? Were you with the track team? Were you with ROTC? Like that's kind of how the, it was sectioned off, but everybody was made to feel that they were someone. Um, and that sort of set the ground for how I interacted with people and how I allowed them to interact with me. Um, I didn't want to be around people who were um, less interested in being a good person and just wanted to be in in the spotlight. It just it just never was my thing. 
Um, so I would, you know, I would leave uh, high school and I would go to a community service job or something to volunteer at. Um, when I was a teenager, WILD was still in Dudley. And, yeah. <laughs> and we had um, one of my classmates, Dr. Atia Martin, worked at WILD. People don't know that she was into comms first. And she would give us the loop on like, you know, who was going to be in town and what, you know, what kind of service projects there were. So that was the place to be. Um, and right next door to that was Urban League, right? So, um, and in Dudley and Roxbury is like really the center of, you know, everything for me. Um, you know, I grew up in Hyde Park which is still in the city of Boston, but it's so far away from where the action was. And the action for me was Roxbury. My friends grew up in Roxbury. My school was in Roxbury. I wanted to be in Roxbury. Um, and it's sort of what kind of made me who I am. Um, I had friends who lived on the fort and around that like Cedar Grove uh, section. So we would just get, we would play and, and do community work and it was just who we were. And that's how I found my niche. I love it. So how did you get involved in politics? I kind of um, got disciplined into it. So, and I say that because um, I had, I was, I got detention one day at O'Brien um, from my history teacher. And he had forgotten that he was supposed to make phone calls for Bill Clinton's reelection campaign. And um, couldn't leave me there. And at O'Brien, um, if you got detention, you had to do detention that day. They did not let you prolong it because the goal wasn't to be about punishment. The goal was to be about like, look, you did this, you got to pay the consequence and you do it that day. Sure. Um, so he dragged me to this call center with him. And my punishment was to get on the calls and persuade people to vote for Bill Clinton's reelection campaign. This was 1998. Um, and so uh, that's how I got into it. I realized that I liked making phone calls. I had the gift of gab, as you can tell. I was good at persuading people to do what I wanted them to do, which was to vote for Bill Clinton. I didn't know anything about policy. I didn't even really, I knew Bill Clinton was president, but at 17, 18 years old, you're not really into policy making. Right. Uh, what I knew was that he was cool. He was the cool president. And, you know, people got off on the fact that here's this teenage kid calling about this. And I made it sound like they give you a script. So I made it sound like I knew what I was talking about. Um, and so that's how I got into politics. And from there, I started volunteering on different campaigns throughout the summer. And then when I got to college, I did an internship um, that was with a congressman in the area. And every summer I would go to DC and work for free out of his congressional office. Um, and that's how I, I learned how to network. Um, in DC, they have this thing called happy hour. And you would leave the Hill and you go to happy hour. And that's how you would meet other congressional staffers. Um, oh, wow. Because that's how stuff gets done. It's through the staff. It's not really a lot of times with the members. It's the staff making um, you know, policy calls and you get my guy to sign on your bill and I'll get my, my girl to sign on your bill. And here's what we'll, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I met a guy named Joel Bridgman who at the time 
um, worked on the Hill. And from there, uh, he got me my first job on the Obama campaign. Oh, wow. Called me years later. I was like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm dying in a cubicle. Like, I was so bored with my life. <laughs> um, and he was like, can you come to Iowa? Um, there's this guy named Barack Obama, senator from Illinois running. I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I don't think he'll win, but I'm so happy to, like, you know, get the hell out of here. Um, I had a Kia Sophia at the time. It had one headlight. Oh <laughs> it had no heat. Um, and I had a puppy. And my dog was a puppy at the time. And we drove from Boston to Iowa for the caucuses. And from there, they sent me to Ohio. From Ohio, I went to the White House. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's so cool. So, you know, in terms of the campaigns that you've worked on over the years, which one is are you the most proud of and why? I would have to say, hands down, um, Mayor Spicer's campaign because um, she took a chance on me with strategy, communications, messaging when I had worked on all these campaigns, but I was never really in a senior role where people were listening to me. Um, and I knew what the ground was saying, but a lot of times on these campaigns, it's very lily white at the top. You yeah. Know? And this is, this was still a time where we had people of color being elected, but they weren't in a lot of positions of power. Mm. Um, and if they were elected, their staff certainly didn't reflect their community. They had white chiefs of staff, white communications people. Um, and so she took a chance on me and I called her up one day out of the blue. I had met her previously. We just knew each other in passing. And I told her, I will come and work on your campaign for free if you take a chance on me. Wow. And she said, well, I ain't got no money, so you ain't got no choice but to work for free. And we rocked the house. One, because here was a relative unknown. She'd never been in politics before. Yeah. I, she was my ideal candidate. I wanted somebody who was unjaded by the political process. Um, I had a strategy for what I would love a person of color to run on for messaging. Um, and so she was amazing. Um, and she was able to take the message that we were trying to send and make it relatable to people of her generation and to people who were not in her generation. Um, mm -hmm. And she crossed color codes, which was awesome. Um, and we just made it work. So I was so proud um, that night that we won. Nobody thought we would. And I love for people to challenge me. Like, if you tell me I can't have something, I'm gonna make sure I do everything to prove you wrong that I can have it. And they told us that she could never be mayor, that they had basically wrote the charter for the other guy. Wow. Pissed me off. And so we kicked ass. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So I'm wondering and I'm curious in terms of your campaign life. How do you choose which campaigns to get involved with and which comes first in terms of your decision-making process? Is it the campaign or is it the person at the heart of the campaign? So it's always the person. Um, and and my ideas have changed over the years, right? Because I've evolved into a certain skill set on what I wanted to do. So I started out just trying to get experience. Mm -hmm. And in politics, you start at the bottom, you start in field. 
But field is also the most important part of the campaign. It's what wins. Um, and I knew that I knew I had to learn every aspect of the campaign if I was ever going to be in a position where I had to run a campaign. So I meant I had to learn finance. I had to learn scheduling. I had to learn, you know, field. I had to learn communications. I had to learn all of that. Um, and so when I pick candidates now, either to endorse or to work for, I always make sure that this person aligns with who I want to be as a person. Is this someone who's compassionate and who has empathy? I don't want anyone who panders. I don't want anyone who sympathizes with the community. Um, because if you're white, you can't sympathize with the black community. You've, you've never been where we are. You can certainly empathize with our struggle. Mm -hmm. um, and so I look at things like that. I, I align myself and listen, there are candidates of color who have asked me to come on and, and help them. And I've turned them down because some of them are just not good people. And being objective um, is really a, a very, very strong part of being in politics because you have to be able to separate the people sometimes from the messaging. Um, sure. And that gets harder because, or the people from the politics, because that gets harder as you as you get into more sexier campaigns. And I, I'll give you a very good example of that. Um, you know, I didn't know much about Joe Kennedy before um, I went to work for him. I knew of him. If you're from Massachusetts, you can't not say you don't know the Kennedys. Sure. Um, but I was never, um, I wasn't a fan. I wasn't fangirling over the Kennedy brand. Um, right. When you're from Massachusetts, you, you don't have to. You see them everywhere. <laughs> They're a clan. You see them. <laughs> I was like, I, I wasn't fangirling over them. Um, I had watched his speech after the uh, State of the Union when he was able to give that speech. Mm -hmm. um, I said to myself then, that's a decent dude. Like, he's seen way too much chapstick, but like, he wow. seems like a really um, decent guy who has his finger on the pulse of what exactly is is going on in this country he'd be somebody to like you know go go further um and then i went on about my my life um and so we crossed paths again because he knew dr spicer uh mayor spicer and um that it just it was it was almost like the stars aligned um and you know his people reached out and said look we've heard about you and I was like yep heard about y'all too um we'd like you to come on cool how much you paying uh how much you making at the mayor's office this what I'm making well we can't match that but you know we can guarantee you that <laughs> that you will have a voice at the table <laughs> so I took a pay cut um which is fine uh and that's how you know that's how it came to be but Joe was one of those people that um even to this day um he he gave me a call today he's I consider him somebody who's a friend he's, he's a genuine person and does not carry the crest arms of the Kennedy on his on his uh shirt he's he is so beyond that that's yeah. what makes it important. so I'm curious what drives you to do what you do um you mean what keeps me up at night or <laughs> well that and what motivates you to go from campaign to campaign to be 
so um, committed, so dedicated, um, especially in the midst of what's going on in the world today. What, um, like, what inspires you to keep going? Um, so both of my parents grew up in the time of segregation. And my mother from Memphis and my father from Cincinnati. And my parents, in, it was it was a known fact that in my house, you learned about black history. And the reason why you learned about black history was in my parents' eyes, if you know who you are, nobody can tell you who they want you to be. Mm. And so every time I would hear in, in political circles about communities of color. It always came from white people who absolutely had no stake in the game. And I was tired of hearing that. And I was also tired of listening to, to black people who worked on these campaigns, who weren't interested in actually moving the needle for communities of color. They were just looking to expand their career. Mm -hmm. and I got pissed off about that. I. What inspires me is to get up and speak for a community that has given me so much. Um, I wouldn't want to be anything but a Black woman. Um, and I say that with conviction because, not just because of the times we sit in now where we have this melanin wave and it's so dope to be Black. It has always been dope to be Black. In Amen. Me, Amen. For me and in my home and and at, at our dinner tables. Um, you know, my, my my father, who was a cop, would say, listen, I'm a cop, but I'm a black man first. And I get that the two are separated because when I don't have this uniform on, I know how they see me. Yep. And I know when I have this uniform on, I know how my people see me. Yeah. So I, I have got I've got to play in that. And and my mom, who grew up, um, you know, upper middle class from Memphis, was still never shielded from segregation. Um, and, and that insular ability that black people of a certain ilk, of elitist status, yeah. um, try to insulate their kids. You just can't do that. Money doesn't cover everything. So I'm inspired every day when I talk about politics that I'm always keeping my community and our needs at the forefront of the conversation with a realistic view. That is not to say that we don't have some reckoning within our own community to do and to talk about. Sure. Yeah. So in terms of my research of you, what I've learned is that you're, you um, do or have um, ventured into meditation and yes. this space around protecting your space, which I think is so fascinating given your trajectory and the work that you've done in these high profile campaigns where, you know, how you find time to meditate in this in the in the middle of a storm that is always brewing something's always yeah. popping off um so i wanted to know if you could talk about that work what yes. people are interested about that and and um how it has helped you especially during these times as yeah. we sit in the pandemic as we sit virtually as we sit in the middle of you know a world storm so I started meditating about two and a half years ago um, out of a, a necessity to, I, many people don't know this about me, but I used to suffer heavily from anxiety attacks where I would like have to go in the bathroom and like remove myself because um, 
situations just got too much. I'm a people person. I don't, I don't mind, I don't mind crowds, but I certainly would get anxiety attacks about things that made me excited. It could be any kind of trigger. So I started reading about um, meditation and, and how to calm the mind. I always had thoughts racing. So I wanted to make sure that I was able to prioritize what that was for me. You know, what was in, what was important? What could really be tasked to the side? Um, and the more I learned about meditation and setting intentional goals and setting affirmations in the morning, how it really kept me calm throughout the day and how to go to that place when I was in a situation where I could feel an anxiety attack coming on. Yeah. Or I could feel myself getting excited about something that really wasn't a big deal. Um, I'm the youngest of five girls. So I often got the brunt of everybody else's mess. I would just sit at the table while every all these conversations were kind of swirling around me. Um, and really not having um, the space to express my own self. Um, and my sisters were significantly older than me. And my sister in front of me is five years older than me. So we're in, we're in a different generation. Um, and, and I'm in a different generation from my, uh, four, my three old, older sisters, the oldest. So, you know, I, I really had to think about building my own world, building my own capacity. And so now I have gotten to a place where I meditate three times a day. And it is so crucial because meditation gives me, and I do something called transcendental manifestation meditation. So what that is, is I meditate to manifest something that I want. Abundance, peace, joy. You can't manifest people. If I did, I'd be manifesting Idris Elba. But you can't manifest people. But you can certainly manifest, you know, the things that you want in your life. Um, I also take that time in meditation to be intentional about who I let in my space because someone's energy can throw you off your trajectory for the day. You ever yeah. been somewhere and you could just feel the person, they come in with an attitude and now you got an attitude? So you're like, I, I, that was, I was, I internalized things like that with people. Even in the dating world, I would, you know, allow people to get away with their bad behavior um, and, and not really um, say, no, you can't, you can't be around me like that. So meditation is very, very important to me. Um, and it keeps me healthy and sane and it keeps people alive around me. So that is important because if I didn't, if I didn't meditate, oh, that'd be a different conversation. <laughs> so in terms of my audience and, and for people listening to this, you know, you're up to three times a day, which I think if, you know, um, if you're struggle busing with the whole working from home, yeah. schooling the children at home, living at home while you work, um, three times a day is a, is a hard goal. It's not impossible, but it is hard. So what well, are mine some is two years in the making, right? And yours is two years yeah. in the making. So what uh, are some, what are some practical steps that you yeah. would share with, um, people who are just starting out? So I started doing 10 minutes a day, um, all day, like, you know, just once a day, 10 minutes in the morning. So the first thing I always tell people is do it in the morning when you're just laying in bed and we all wake up and we lay in bed for an additional, some people grab their phone and go through Facebook. What I did was I got disciplined about taking just 10 minutes, just 10 minutes to say, 
today is going to be a great day. You bring a lot to the table. Um, you know, here are some things that you can get done today. Meditation is different for everybody. Some people, it's just a quiet time where they say nothing. Some people pray. Some people set intentions. Some people do affirmations. You can do all of those things. But it is so crucial to just take 10 minutes when you're just one with yourself, one with your thoughts, or to clear your mind in general. And it's so simple. And once you get in the habit, you add another 10 minutes or you add another 20. Um, or if you can't do it in the morning, do it right before you go to bed. You know, it's easy to throw on your pajamas and sit on the edge of your bed and just have five minutes of quiet time where you're not thinking about anything. That's meditation too. Um, and as you get into the space of learning how to breathe and learning how to clear your mind, then it gets a little bit longer. I didn't realize one day that I had meditated for an hour until it had been done. Um, and then I just made the decision like, okay. I, so I meditate at 5.30 every morning, 5.30 to 6.30. And then I meditate from one to two. And then I meditate before I go to bed. Now the meditation before I go to bed is a little bit tricky. Sometimes I don't go to bed till 12. So I have to set like a time, like from 10 to 11, I'm gonna meditate. Um, also one other tip I tell people is go on YouTube. They have five minute guided meditations that you can do and it, it teaches you, you know, about breathing, um, which is a, a crucial part. Awesome. But thank you for that question because meditation is so, so important. And I think if more women and more black women got into it, um, you can really, you can manifest anything you want. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it is key. And I've done, yeah. I've been doing meditation um, and it help, has helped me leaps and bounds. Um, yeah. And I try to bring it into spaces that are are safe environment so that people are open. Cause you yeah. know, some people, you know, they have guards up. And so I just yes. think, you know, not even just saying anything, it's just breathing. Let's take, take some time to breathe before we jump in. So it, I, I definitely can speak to that. Um, so talk to me about Prosecco and politics. Oh, politics and Prosecco. So uh, this is my baby. So. <laughs> Politics and Prosecco was born out of Lori Lennon and I were doing a show on NECN. We, we often get called in to do, you know, to be a local political pundit on races. And we were just like, we don't want to do this as a one-off. We, we had good rapport with each other. And Brian Chapman from NECN um, brought us together. So we had been talking about doing this for some time now. And finally, we just kind of put the hammer down. and was like, okay, what do we want this format to be? Um, so Politics and Prosecco is really Lori Lennon and I being a little shady, talking about politics, drinking Prosecco, and having a conversation about how politics in the political space really do interact in every single part of your life. Mm. Um, We've had some guests on, um, and we now have people wanting to be on our show. We just launched in May, and we did. We had a spot on MSNBC this year. That's um, awesome! Yeah. So, um, so it, you know, for this to be to for this to launch in May, and for us to to get picked up um, and be brought on and get to have the little card that says politics and prosecco um, was really cool. Um, Crystal Haynes also gave us a, a spotlight. Um, so we're, we're really proud of it. And, and, you know, we've had, we've scheduling has been a little 
crazy lately. Um, but we resume back the second week in January. So get get uh, get some popcorn because we're gonna have some explosive guests next year, especially in January. I'm excited. I'm so excited. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to listen in. Um, so I want to uh, talk to you about the current state that we're in um, in terms of, you know, we're out of, you know, the presidential election. The Electoral College just voted um, Joe Biden in as president. Um, yeah, finally. Finally. Um, which, you know, again, it's 2020. You know, I, I always, I feel like this is the year that I'm deeming the year of the plot twist. So everything that, you know, you thought that. you knew, yeah. you know, it's kind of out the door. And so yeah. um, I, uh, you know, want to talk to you specifically about this notion of um, building the bench. And, you know, whether we're looking at the presidential election or looking at this moment of um, racial equity um, and justice, um, we're seeing more and more candidates of color um, and we're not only seeing them, you know, in local elections, but we're seeing them across the board nationally. So I, I just wanted to get your sense, given your experience, how do we build the bench for um, candidates of color um, in Massachusetts? Yeah. Um, so let me just start by saying Massachusetts is not as liberal as people think it is. Um, and because of that, it's been harder to build a bench. Um, I think what we do is we have got to sort of stop working within silos of each other, right? So there's like Black Boston, there's like Black Springfield, Black Lawrence, Latino, like Chelsea, um, and you know, like Asian, Newton, and Brookline, um, and Quincy. So we're not building a bench of diversity because we're all working in our own silo. And right now we have one person of color who's in our delegation, our congressional delegation, that's Ayanna Presley. Yeah. And it's unfair to put the entire burden on her to carry the weight of diversity in, in the state of Massachusetts. And it's also unfair for us to just have one person. Um, so I think that the first thing we have to start with is having a reckoning in, within our communities to call out electeds of color who aren't serving us and replace them with ones who are. The problem with a lot of people of color is one, we run on the local level and that's where we stop, right? I'm gonna run for city council, I'm gonna run for mayor, I'm gonna run because that's where we think the ceiling is. I've been encouraging people, run for everything. Make them all scared. Run for Senate. Run for Speaker of the House. Run for Governor. Make them all afraid. Because the fact that they're not afraid is why we don't, <laughs> we don't have any diversity. There's not one person of color in our state delegation. Or, um, sorry. Um, for Governor, um, uh, Treasurer, Auditor, or Aging. No one there. Um, and yet these are the people that are making daily decisions for people of color. Um, and not all of them are bad. There's some good people up there. Yeah. Mark Healy's a good person. Deb Goldberg's a good person. But we need some diversity. And 
on the local level, when it comes to electeds, what we have are a lot of times people who were community activists who decide, I'm gonna run for city council. Not realizing that, for instance, a, a city of Boston, it's a mayor heavy city. City council has almost no power. Right. So you're not moving the needle. You're taking up a space. You're working a part-time job and getting paid way more than the constituents in your area. And you want to go to talk to them about equitable changes. Well, it's not equitable that you're a part-time person making $100,000. So all tea, all shade. <laughs> um, welcome to politics Prosecco now. <laughs> um, same thing in, in Springfield where, where they have a, a more equitable city council. Their city council and mayor is almost on the same level. Um, Framingham is a mayor heavy city. So I've encouraged people to step outside of your box and run for things that are going to scare people. If Karen Spilka thinks she's going to be US, uh, to be Senate president for the rest of her life, she's entitled to think that. But there should be 50 other people of color running for Senate in whatever district. So now she's got to reach outside of her bag to incorporate those people. If they're not afraid, and they haven't been for a long time, Massachusetts is a very white state. If they're not afraid, they're not going to move. And if they're not going to move, we certainly aren't on their table. Right. So there's my answer. So then, you know, I always feel as though every four years we kind of sell this rhetoric of your vote is, you know, the end all be all. You got to get out. You got to vote for a president. You got to vote. And it's really that your vote is only the beginning, that you have to get engaged. You have to go to the community meetings. You have to talk to these people who want to run for office. And this notion and this idea of understanding how it really works, how policy really works and the intersectionality of who you put in office and how you engage people. And this idea of education that not, that people don't understand that process. And so therefore they don't necessarily they don't know where or how to leverage that like energy of that national campaign to come back to the local level. So how do you um, create fervor or create or build better awareness for people to kind of say, no, 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 like it, it's going down at the local level. Like, yes, there's a national election. Yes, there are all these things at stake, but it's just as uh, much important for you to look at your own backyard and your neighborhood and to get people out there because we we are listened to in numbers not like just this notion of the individual you know so so here's the thing with that is you know (sighs) so briefing a lot of deep (laughs) (laughs) the problem with that is the people of color that are in office in those local um we don't hold them accountable. We don't hold them accountable for when it's not an election time. And I'm gonna give you a very, very, very good example of that that happened this year. So we're in the middle of a pandemic. We all got to vote by mail or it's an option to vote by mail. Mm -hmm. And very few city councilors where the votes go into city hall, very few of them across the state of color spoke about it to encourage and reassure people 
that this was a safe way to vote. We've been voting like this since the Civil War. This is not new to America. Right. And a lot of city councilors of color failed their residents because they didn't do that. And mm. here's the kicker. Now they all have to run for re-election. So what are they talking about? Registering to vote. We don't need to talk about registering to vote. We need to talk about enacting and engaging those people so that they actually vote, whether it's vote by mail, which is what they're probably going to have to do, or walk into City Hall and do early vote. The onus was on local electeds to talk about that, to get that message clear. And if I gave out a grade, they all failed. Wow. And they all failed because, actually, let me take that back. I'm gonna tell you who was ringing the alarm about this. Long before it was sexy, was Liz Miranda. Liz Miranda has been talking about vote by mail since March, maybe April, maybe April when we started talking about what's going to happen for the for the vote. Um, no, it was, it was definitely like March because we were talking about the primary. Liz Miranda was the only person of color elected official that had been literally yelling at the top of her lungs about the importance of coming to get to, to turn in your applications and to make sure that you are voting by mail. And so we have to give her credit for that. Liz Miranda often yells at the top of our minds, by the way. <laughs> so, um, but the onus was on a local electeds to do that. And so here we are now, many of them are running for re-election or running for higher office. And there's nothing set in, in our communities about the importance of voting in non-election, non-presidential election years or for those local offices. I tell people all the time, the presidency is important, but the the most important vote you can give besides your local electeds is the midterm elections. Because nothing gets to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that doesn't cross the desk of Nancy Pelosi first. That is how the government is set up. It goes to the House of Representatives first. Yeah. And if there's nobody there that looks like us or is representing us or has our needs at, at the top, at the forefront of their mind, nothing's gonna get done. Um, and it's our, it's important for us to have diversity in, in the House of Representatives. The Senate, eh, I mean, yeah, they're important, but right now we don't have the majority. So, yeah, but that's my answer. No, no that's <laughs> the long that's, way of saying it, but. Yeah, no, thank you for lifting that up. So I started Hot Mama Chronicles as an homage to the women in my family who are living their lives, flaws and all. So yeah. a, hot, a hot mama is a woman living in purpose on purpose. So I always ask this question to all of my guests. Do you believe hot mamas are made or are they born? Oh, um, I definitely believe they are made because people speak life into you. Um, you don't know who you are on this earth until I think you're about six or seven. You don't, you know, I, you don't know if you're black, you don't know you're white, you don't, you, all you know is, is your gender. Um, and, and that's only because of the clothes you wear. Um, other than that, people have to speak life into you. And especially in our community, and I say this all the time, I was lucky I had a mother who spoke life into me at an early age by saying, look in the mirror, look at your hair. Don't you love your hair? Look at your teeth. Don't you love your, when, when, you know, as they came in, of course. 
<laughs> but you know, look at your skin. How pretty is your skin? Um, you know, I, I had someone who was speaking life into me at an early age so that when I got to high school where things are sprouting and you're not really sure of, of things curving out, um, nobody can make me feel bad about myself. Um, yeah. Not that they tried, but you know, that, that's a, when you're hitting puberty, that's a tough time. And when you're a black girl like me, who developed very early, um, you know, I was glad that I, I had a, a base, a foundation. So I believe hot mamas are made um, because you can take anyone who's been broken down and, and burnt up and speak life into them consistently, no matter what their struggles are, trauma, and, and they can turn into a butterfly for sure. For sure. So my last question, um, again, because you are you appear very youthful and you have a whole long career ahead of you, um, but I've been really thinking about this idea of legacy and um, what you're leaving behind um, for in, in the path that you're clearing for others that come behind you. And so I wanted to ask you, what do you foresee your legacy to be and how do you want to be seen? Um, well, thank you for saying I'm youthful because 40 is the, is youthful. <laughs> uh, nobody ever believes me when I tell them I'm 40. Um, I think what I'd like to leave behind is I'd like somebody to say, when I called Jaquetta for a cup of coffee because I needed some advice, she always took my call. I never want to be ever labeled as a sister who got too high up in the clouds where I couldn't reach down help somebody else. I've seen those women, I know those women, and I never wanna be like those women. I want my legacy to be, she reached down and brought me up, or she let me eat at her table, or she certainly um, made a, a, a reference for me. Um, she helped me in some way. That's how I wanna be. I want people to think of me. Um, my friends uh, think I'm too much anyway, so I'm not worried about what they think. I don't care. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but certainly people um, around me, I want them to always think highly of me and thinking that I was not just a sister in skin, but I was certainly a sister in service to them. That's a wonderful way to wrap up. Jaquetta, thank you so much for your work, for thank being you. a leader and a shaker and just a pure gift in the political space. Thank um, you. Thank you. And so I um, I appreciate everyone who's listening. Please subscribe to Hot Mama Chronicles. Remember the road to being a hot mama is about the journey and not the destination. One love.